And please turn, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts, chapter 13. The apostles and through them the church were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel into all the world. You remember the words of our Lord at the beginning of the book of Acts. It was after his death and resurrection, immediately before his ascension back into heaven. He said to them, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Well, so far, in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, we have seen the gospel being preached throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but not yet taken to the end of the earth. What they were doing, they were doing well and faithfully, preaching God's Word, filling Jerusalem with the doctrine of Christ. But God's plan, and it was His plan from long, long ago, was to take it further. His commission was to take the Gospel into all the world. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. At the very beginning of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul stated emphatically, without any reservation whatsoever, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then when we come to chapter 10 of Romans, he declares that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he asks, Uh, a series of rhetorical yet very common sense questions. He says, well, how shall they believe on Him of whom they have not heard? The answer, they won't. (laughs) They can't. They've never heard of Him. How can they believe on Him? And then he asks, well, how can they hear without a preacher? Again, they won't. They can't. And his point is very clear that the message of the gospel must be proclaimed. And then he asks the final question, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? He ends with this glorious quote from the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring the tidings of joy. When we come to chapter 13, As R.C. Sproul said, we find on the onset, we find the onset of the most significant missionary undertaking in the entire history of the church. Indeed, in the entire history of the world. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 13. In verses 1 through 3, we have the calling and sending of the first Christian missionaries. And then in verses 4 through 12, we have their first stop, which is the island of Cyprus. Well, let's uh, read the first three verses to begin with. It says, Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who was who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And they just write into the first part of verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. So here we have in verses 1 through 3, the calling and sending of the first Christian missionaries. When Paul asked the question in Romans 10, how shall they preach unless they are sent? To whom was he referring? That is, who does the sending? Is it God who sends or is it the church? The answer is yes. It's both. And we'll see that in these opening verses. Uh, the, The scene here is the church in Antioch. We read of the formation of this church back in chapter 11, and we see there that it was born as a direct result of the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. It says in chapter 11, if you want to look back there, just turn a page and you'll be there. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Uh, We go on to read that when news what God was doing there in Antioch, reached the church in Jerusalem, they immediately sent Barnabas to them to check things out and see where he might be a help to them. And he was a great help. He was a great encourager and a great teacher. But he, Barnabas, then went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was, it says, that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. Great things were happening in Antioch. God was blessing. The church was growing. And now it emerges as one of the most influential churches in the New Testament, even, some argue, surpassing that of the church in Jerusalem. In verse 1, Luke gives us the names of the certain prophets and teachers in the church. And I'll not... Read through those again. Uh, there's not much to comment on that. Um, uh, not, not at this point anyway. But in verse 2, he tells us that these men, these prophets and teachers of the church, and perhaps the whole church together, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The word for ministering can mean worshiping. Even perhaps the public worship of God. Well, as they were ministering and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. Now, we're not sure how he spoke to them. He speaks in various ways. Uh, Perhaps, as many have argued, that it had probably been through one of the prophets that was at the church as they were the mouthpiece of God. 
And so what does the Spirit speak? What does He say? He says, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Now note, this very clearly tells us that the Holy Spirit is not a mere force or energy. He's a person. He speaks as a person here. Separate the, these men for the work which I have called them to do. Uh, he's the third person of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now notice also that God is the one who calls men into His service. That's what the Spirit says regarding these two men. The work which I have called them. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus before he's about to depart from them. And he reminds them that it was the Holy Spirit who made them overseers. We're not just talking about someone called to be an apostle. He's talking about even the men in the church who have been raised up as elders. He says it's the Holy Spirit who has made you an overseer. Now, this teaches us that only God can make a true minister of the gospel. God must call them. Now, in the Old Testament, God would often speak audibly calling a man to be a prophet. Uh, and we don't believe that God speaks audibly nowadays. Uh, perhaps he did in that day. I don't know. Uh, but in some way, God reveals to them that they are called by him. Uh, in um, uh, in Jeremiah teaches us that, that there are those prophets and teachers that go out that are not even called by God, and yet they pretend that they are. Jeremiah 23, verse 32, God says very clearly, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err and, uh, by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet, God says, I did not send them or command them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all. See, a man may think he's called to the ministry and not actually be called. He may be self-deceived or deluded, or maybe he's just a pretender. But God must, first of all, call a man to the ministry. R.C. Sproul said, we can commission people, but we have no power. We can license, ordain, and send people on sacred tasks, but unless the Holy Spirit anoints them, their labors will be in vain. But notice that the Spirit tells the church to separate these men or set them apart. Uh, when something is sanctified, it is set apart for a holy use. And these men would be set apart for the work which God had called them to. Now, Guy Waters in his commentary uh, makes four points about the Spirit calling. He says the Spirit calls particular men to a definite work of ministry in the church. It's not just some fabrication or just something we do. God is the one who is active within His church, raising up men, calling them to a specific task and to the office of elder or even to the office of deacon. But secondly, he says the Spirit's call is antecedent either to the church's recognition 
of that call or the men's commencement in their work. I mean, it must have the call of the Holy Spirit first. It comes first in order. But thirdly, he says the church has a calling to recognize and to send the men whom the Spirit calls to a particular work of ministry. And that's important to know. What's the church's function here? They can't, by their own power, convey any power to that man for the office. God must do that. The church, though, recognizes those whom God is raising up. They're recognizing and they're sending these men out. And then fourthly, the pattern here, and he sort of summarized it here, the pattern here is that men would undertake gospel ministry only when they have first been called by the Spirit and second, recognized and set apart formally by the church as having been called by the Spirit. It's both of those things a man needs. The call from God and the recognition by the church. And that's again where so many fail in our day. They believe in their hearts they're called. Maybe they've had some sort of experience or prompting or something. And they believe God has called them. But they bypass the church and go out on their own. And they shouldn't do that. It's the church must recognize. And that's what we see here. It says then, verse 3 notes, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Uh, and, and then it says, they, the church, sent them away. But then the next verse says, and so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. So again, which one is it? Well, it's both. They sent them because they recognized that God had called them and raised them up for this purpose. And so they are the sending church. They're sending them out. And yet the Holy Spirit sent them. Now, the uh, so that's the uh, the uh, the calling of these first missionaries. But then we see, beginning in verse 4, uh, the first stop. They're sent out, and the first stop is Cyprus. It says in verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's even still called by that name. And many of the cities that are even mentioned here and other places are still called those very names. Uh, it's it, it's uh, an absolutely beautiful island. I, I looked up some things on it on the Internet, and it's an absolutely gorgeous island. Well, why did these first missionaries go there? Well, I don't believe that it was because it was so gorgeous. <laughs> uh, although... When a man goes to a certain place or has a certain ministry at a beautiful place, like our brother David Vaughn in France. When I went to visit him in France, I thought, this is so gorgeous, so beautiful. And you think, that's where I want to be called, someplace like that. Or somebody says, I want to be called to, we used to joke about this back in college and seminary, that maybe the Lord will lead me to a ministry in Hawaii. <laughs> that sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Well, they, they, why did they go there? It wasn't because of that. Not in any way. <clears throat> Perhaps it was because this was the home country of Barnabas. We're told that that's where he was from. Also, the church in Antioch, as we notice from reading in chapter 11, it was first planted by men from Cyprus. And so maybe that's why that's the first stop. Let's go to Cyprus and spread the gospel more there. 
Or perhaps it was because of the incredible spiritual darkness of the land. Beauty doesn't mean good. (laughs) There can be beautiful things that are very, very evil. And this land was very evil. Charles Spurgeon describes it in this way. Cyprus, he says, was by no means a reputable island. It was devoted to the goddess Venus. Venus is the goddess of love. Love, no, it should be the goddess of lust. Uh, Also, she's known as Aphrodite. And you can imagine, Spurgeon says, what her worship was and what would be the fruitful licentiousness which sprang of it. Landing at one end of the island, the two apostolic men traversed it till they came to Paphos, where the Roman governor resided, which we'll see in a moment. Now, this Paphos was the central city of the worship of Venus and was the scene of frequent prolificate processions and abominable rites. Uh, probably the same kinds of things we see in or hear about in, in New Orleans and places like that. We might call it, Spurgeon says, the place where Satan's seat is. Athanasius styled its religion the deification of lust. So it's a very, very dark place. Beautiful, but dark. And then so we see that's the the place, but the the purpose of their going, what did they do when they got there? Well, notice it says in verse 5, and when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word in the synagogues of the Jews. So that's what they did. That was their purpose. They weren't there to visit the beautiful beaches or see the cultural sights or the natural wonders or to watch the beautiful sunsets. They were there and sent by God on a mission. They were sent by the church to preach the gospel. And true missionary work revolves around preaching the word of God. It's not a humanitarian Mission, though sometimes humanitarian aid is, is, comes in very handy in helping the people. But a missionary should never forget why he's really there. It's because men are in darkness and they need the light of the gospel. So true missionary preaching is preaching, the true missionary work is preaching the gospel. And so they did. Then uh, this would become Paul's pattern. It says they uh, they preach the word in the synagogues of the Jews. We'll see that throughout the book of Acts, how Paul would go into a city or town. And that's the first thing he checked out was the synagogue, because that would be his pattern to take the gospel to the Jews first. The best place to find them and to teach them would, of course, be in the local synagogue. So their purpose was to preach the word and they immediately got to work. But then not long after they got to work, well, it does say they they traveled throughout. uh, They'd gone throughout the island to Paphos uh, and there they found a certain sorcerer. Verse six. Now, when they'd gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Barjesus who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man, Sergius Paulus, called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, 
for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So they're out doing the work that God had called them to do, and they meet with opposition. Which again, that's that's no less than what Jesus, no more, no less than what Jesus said would happen. He said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, implying clearly that the gates of hell would oppose them. And so we have this opposition from Satan himself. If this is Satan's seat, as Mr. Spurgeon described it, we would expect his opposition and we see it. We'll see this pattern continue throughout the book of Acts as well. Wherever the gospel is preached, there will be opposition. There was opposition when Jesus preached. Jesus said, men love darkness rather than the light. And so they see this opposition. In this instance, though, it comes from what we would call a likely source, a sorcerer. That's someone who deals in witchcraft and occult. Some call him a magician. Well, he's not just doing magic tricks or something of that nature. No, it's someone who deals in witchcraft and the occult, as we, as we read here, uh, a sorcerer. He's also called, in verse 6, a false prophet. A false prophet, again, is someone who speaks in the name of God, but they prophesy falsely. They don't tell the people what God actually says or what God's Word teaches. No, they they preach and teach falsely. And so they lead the people astray from following the Word of God. That was the design of Satan in the use of false prophets. You remember in Second Peter or when we read about the Word of God that, uh, that we're to uh, pay attention to the Word of God. Holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the end of chapter 1. You come to the very first verse in chapter 2 and it says, and as there was false prophets rising up among them in the Old Testament, so they will arise among you. Jesus said, we're to beware of the false prophets. They come to us, he says, in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And here's this man, Elimus, uh, Elimus who, who, who uh, is a sorcerer, but it goes on to say that he was a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. He was a Jew and yet he had absolutely no regard for God's will, God's law. <laughs> Any Jew would know what God's Word says about sorcery. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9, this was the very reason that, that God warned the people before He sent them into the land of promise. He said, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. And what's the particular abomination He's referring to? Sorcery. He says, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one of their wicked rituals, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures up spells, or a medium, or a spiritualist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things, he says, are an abomination to the Lord. Because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. The very reason God was driving out these nations from the promised land, because they were living like this. They were an abomination to Him. Now here's a Jew who knows that, and yet he completely disregards it. Completely disregards it. False prophets are not a thing of the past. They're all over the place. They're even in the evangelical church where ministers, supposedly ministers of the gospel, will lead people astray, astray from following God's Word. And sometimes in the name of love and kindness and and even with the pretense of winning them to Christ. But they're deceptive. They are disregarding God's law. Peter said there will be false prophets among you, even as there there was false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. God doesn't think much of a false prophet. Not much at all. But Peter warns many will follow their destructive ways and because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. He said they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In other words, God is going to take care of these false prophets. Well, this sorcerer whose name was Elimus was also a highly influential man. It says in verse 7 that he, Elimus, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Uh, He he was, uh, he hobnobbed with the big shots, we would say. Uh, He wasn't just some uh, witch doctor out in the woods somewhere. No, he he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Uh, and so he had influence on people and, and perhaps even this man, Sergius Paulus. Well, now let's, let's look at him for a moment. Sergius Paulus, he was the proconsul or governor of that province. Uh, he was a Roman governor. Um, uh, but, uh, that's, that's something unusual, you know, that God would call him in. We see him believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but this is something unusual that happens. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
Now, that's unusual for a couple of reasons, isn't it? Uh, the two things that Luke mentions about him, that he was the proconsul or governor, and that he was an intelligent man. Now, Paul told the Corinthian church when he was trying to humble them, they were getting very too, way too proud of themselves. He says, consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And here is this man who was both noble and wise according to the flesh. Uh, it is also unusual because he seemed ripe for the picking, we'd say. And you don't run across people like that too often when you're, when you're witnessing. You usually have to answer this question and that question. And they do like most people. say, well, I'll think about it at best. But he seemed ripe and ready. Uh, when I was flying home from South Carolina, I sat beside a young lady on the, on the airplane. And uh, she was somewhere in her 20s. And she almost immediately struck up a conversation with me. And we began by just talking about where are you from and uh, things of that nature. What do you do? Uh, but then before she even knew that I was a preacher or anything, she asked me if I had any life lessons for her. And uh, being that I'm so old and I surely have learned something that I could convey to her. Uh, but then she narrowed it down even further. She said, what's the most important thing you've ever learned? Well, Wow. They talk about ripe and ready, and uh, ripe and ready as far as to, I didn't have to force my way into the conversation at all. She's asking, and she's and she seemed to be really wanting to know. Uh, and and of course, my answer was that I've come to believe way back when I was 18 years old that the most think, most important thing in life is knowing God through Jesus Christ, and to have a relationship with Him. And so, in that sense. She was ready, but here's this man's heart had been well prepared for the gospel. He had called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And just like the noble-minded men of Berea, he received the word with all readiness of mind. Uh, he didn't outrightly reject it, as so many do. So often men reject the gospel without even considering it or hearing it without giving it a fair hearing if they do. But he called for them. He wanted to hear the Word of God from them. But then we read in verse 8, here's the opposition, but Elimus the sorcerer withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now this is a very serious matter to hinder the Gospel or to try to turn someone Away from the faith. We see how just, we see just how serious it was by Paul's stern response. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Then Saul, who's also called Paul, and by the way, from here on out, he's called Paul, which I'm glad because I keep saying Saul, not I mean Paul, and I mean Saul, it's Paul from now on. So, uh, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and said, oh, full of all deceit and fraud. Well, see, a false prophet is full of all deceit and fraud. 
They're not being honest with you. They're not being open. In fact, a false teacher, false prophet, when you try to nail them down, they're very elusive. They, they sound like they're saying the truth. They even sound like they're saying the same thing you're saying, perhaps. But they're lying. They won't just come right out and tell you. Now, we at our church, if you want to know what we believe, we'll tell you. <laughs> now, you may never come back again, but we're going to tell you. And I tell visitors that. I'll say, listen, I'm an open book. You can ask any question you want. What we believe, I'd be glad to tell you. And I do it with trepidation because I know they're going to hear things maybe they've never heard before or that they may not like. But a preacher is to preach the Word of God. He's not to fear men. He's to fear God. And so uh, Paul says, uh, he, he says, Oh, full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease from perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Dr. Sproul said Paul could have taken a, 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 a taken aside Bar Jesus, which means the son of Jesus, in an attempt to speak privately with him and to avoid a confrontation in front of the proconsul. He also could have charmed the false prophet by being gentle in his refutation. But Paul chose another manner altogether. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And Sproul goes on to say, obviously the apostle had not taken time to read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> he lashed into this man and gave him a what for. And we are told that he spoke in this manner while filled with the Holy Spirit. You might think, well, Saul just was crass. He was thoughtless. He was just like a bull in a china shop. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he said these things. He wasn't walking in the flesh. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to understand Charles Simeon's caution in this matter. He said, in general, the duty of ministers is to, quote, have compassion on them that are ignorant and out of the way. And, quote, to instruct in meekness them that oppose themselves. Remember, Paul told young Timothy that. Uh, that he's to, with patience, correct those who are in opposition. But, he says, and acknowledges, and he's right here, but there are occasions when it is necessary for them to rebuke men sharply and with all authority. And that's... Quoting from Paul's own writings as well. Certain people coming into the church, upsetting whole families and so forth, rebuke them sharply with all authority. But then he also adds this caution, Mr. Simeon does. We do not indeed think that it would be proper for an uninspired minister to use exactly the language of our text because he could not tell what measure of impiety existed in the mind of the person reproved. And that's something we need to be careful about because we may think a person is is a heretic when maybe they are just ignorant. And we need to be careful and, and not to drive them away by harsh language. But whether inspired or not, Simeon says, it becomes every servant of God to make a firm stand against infidelity and impiety and declare without reservation the judgments of God against the enemy's of the gospel. Be careful when you do, but there are times when you need to rebuke 
men sharply. But he was under the Spirit's guidance, and he rebuked him. And see what he says here. He says, full of all deceit and fraud. He's a, he's a liar. He says, you son of the devil. <laughs> well, what is the work of the devil? What does he try to do? He blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so when men find themselves purposely hindering the spread of the gospel, they are in fact doing the work of the devil. And so by doing the work of the devil, they prove that they are indeed children of the devil. That's what Jesus, in his rebuke of the Pharisees, he said, you're children of the... They said, Abraham is our father. No, your father is the devil. Why? He was a liar from the beginning and you're doing the same thing. You're doing the works of your father, the devil. Like father, like son. And we need to be careful. And if you're not a Christian, you be careful uh, that you don't hinder people. You remember what Jesus said, it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and cast into the sea. Jesus said that. Loving Jesus said that. Because when He sees people being led astray by error, led astray by falsehood, led astray by deceit. He sees who's really doing that work, and it's the devil himself. But notice Paul not only calls him the son of the devil, he calls him an enemy of all righteousness. (laughs) They're not true followers of righteousness. They're enemies of righteousness. They're not... Righteousness is following God. Righteousness is following God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness is following God and seeking to live after His commandments. They're not leading them in that way. They're leading them away. And notice he says, the right ways of the Lord. You you pervert the straight ways of the Lord. The straight ways. That's what the Gospel is. It's the straight and narrow way. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate for Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. In fact, the Bible speaks about the ways of wickedness as being crooked ways. Not a straight path. It's a crooked path. It goes over here and it goes over there. It's all over the place. And many contend with the right ways of the Lord, but will they show us anything better? How do they judge whether it's the right way or not? You see, many judge a way to be right because many or, or more people believe it. And it's the popular way. And that's what Jesus warned about. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And what? Many go thereby. Many. So just because a lot of people are following something doesn't mean it's right. In fact, Jesus warns that it's probably wrong. How do you like that? <laughs> Where do you, where are your polls in that? And that's what men do. That's what they do actually in taking polls. You know, more people believe in uh, abortion's okay, or more people believe this or that. Does that make it right? No. No. In fact, that ought to make you wake up and look. Look about and see. Many judge a way to be right because it makes them feel so good. It's comforting to them. Those who are pursuing truth.
true righteousness and they're pursuing the truth. They want the truth. They don't want something just to make them feel good. They want the truth whether it makes them feel good or not. And sometimes when the truth hurts, that's the best thing it can do. And then, after Paul states his case, and now indeed, the hand of, verse 11, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. You don't generally see such an immediate demonstration of God's displeasure and judgment as we see here. Or even as we saw earlier in, in the previous chapter of King Herod who was struck down because he didn't give God the glory. Often men go on and on in their wickedness. And that's the question. Where is God? When will the judgment of God happen? Sometimes, though, we do see it. Well, here's this man who was struck blind. But then let's finish up by looking at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, he believed what saw what had been done. That is what had happened to the sorcerer. When he saw the judgment of God fall on this man, he took it to heart. You might think that you would have done the same thing. If you saw such a clear display of God's judgment, well, who wouldn't, you might think. But this is what the rich man who died, Jesus spoke of, who lifted his eyes in torment and he, and he begged Father Abraham that if he only send Lazarus back from the dead and warn his family, then they would believe. And Father Abraham, Jesus said, told him, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not listen to them, neither will they believe, even if one were raised from the dead. I think I've told you the story about when I first became a Christian. I worked in a restaurant and everybody knew my life before and they, they saw the change that God had wrought in me and, and that, uh, that I, God had really changed my life. And it, well, it became the talk of the restaurant. Everyone was talking about God now. And questioning about this and about that, and, and but there was one cook that uh, was so upset. He he was a wise and intelligent young man, and he just uh, somebody came back to where I was working and said, "Did you hear what Chuck said?" I said, "No, what?" He said, "He said I'll prove there's no God to you. I'll prove it." And everybody heard him. And he began to shake his fist in heaven and said, if you're there, strike me down. Strike me down. <laughs> See, there's no God. And it was only a few days later that he was shot in the back of the head, just driving down the road with some friends on a Friday night, shot in the back of the head in the neck or somewhere there, and it paralyzed him. He didn't die, but he's paralyzed. I don't know anyone in the restaurant that turned to the Lord after that. That they saw it and said, oh, I'm going to become a Christian. God really does exist. Look what He did to Chuck. They still harden their hearts. They harden their hearts. This really demonstrates the extent of the depravity of man. Even when he's confronted with the very power of God, whether it be a wonder-working power in healing or in judgment, he will not believe. 
But notice that it says he believed being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't that he just saw the judgment. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He received their teaching as the teaching of the Lord. Paul said that to the Thessalonians. He thanked God that when he came and preached, they received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And we see this man, it says he was an intelligent man. He inquired after the truth. He wanted to know more about it. Uh, he, uh, he wanted to hear the word of God. And you should want to hear the word of God. You should want to know more about it. You should read your Bible. And how many people living in a country like this that has Bibles everywhere accessible, preaching everywhere, and yet they don't want it. They just avoid it. You'll ask them, have you ever read the Bible? No. You've never read anything in the Bible? Not really. They're not inquiring after the truth. He wanted it. He wanted to hear. What do these men have to say? He considered it carefully. And I say this because this sorcerer, Elimus, tried his best to dissuade him from falling for it. Don't fall for what these guys have to offer. But he he waited out. But then he acted upon it. He believed, it says. He believed. He trusted in Christ. He became a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad that when Paul said not many wise or noble, he didn't say not any? For God does still reach down and save men of high repute. He acted on it. He believed. But what, what if he would have put it off for another time, a more convenient time like another Roman governor, Felix, did? Later on in the book of Acts, we'll read about that. He said, I'll hear you at another time. And yet, we read nothing of his conversion. Or King Agrippa, Paul giving his defense before King Agrippa, he confessed to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. We know that almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Almost doesn't count. And we read nothing of his subsequent conversion because it's doubtful that he did. But don't put off turning to Christ. Don't put off turning to Him. And this teaches us, Paul preaching this to them, it teaches us that there's always a response to the Gospel. You don't walk away neutral. You either believe it or you don't. People either receive and believe it or they reject it. Now, they may think I'll come back at another time and revisit the situation when I've done this or I've done that in my life. But no, that's not the answer. You should come now. Come quickly. Believe of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, the Bible teaches. And so he believed, being astonished, at the teaching of the Lord. When you become a Christian, you're astonished and you become increasingly astonished. The more you read the Bible, the more you see that this came from God. 
the more you see and find comfort in His Word. The more you read it, you believe it, and you're sanctified by it. Your faith grows. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so here, the Gospel comes to this island. Now, we don't know of other conversions there on that particular island, but we know of this one. He's a man, a, a man of a, a notable man, an intelligent man. And he believes and was saved. So the gospel goes forth. God sent and he sent them to this island. And this man is converted. And who knows how many more, but the gospel goes forth just as it's going forth today, even in this place. And it's you are admonished in Scripture to obey, follow the Gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray.